You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship. South Point Fellowship exists to equip the family of God for the mission of God. For more information, please visit spfchurch.org. Summer in the Psalms begins this morning, and so we're going to be preaching over the next 10 weeks from the book of Psalms. We believe it's important that um, we look at the Old and the New Testaments. We recently came through the book of Judges before we went through our spiritual gift series, and so we want to incorporate everything that's in Scripture because we believe that it is all profitable, and it is helpful, and it will do a great work in our heart and in our life. Um, The Psalms, as we look at the Psalms, invite us to connect with a transcendent God. As we read the Psalms, we'll read uh, mostly from a a man named David who has this ache in his heart to know and connect with God. But we also understand through the Psalms that just as much as we desire to connect with God, that God loves us and wants us to be in relationship with and fellowship with him. So don't miss the personal side of the text as we go through it over the next 10 weeks. This morning, um, I ran down to Locust Grove and um, had a class that I was going to teach, and a man showed up, and we spent a few minutes together, and then I got in the car and drove back to McDonough, and as I was driving down, I called my wife. I don't know if you guys call your wife, but I called my wife. It's Sunday morning. I left the house. She's there alone getting ready to go to church, and I want to make sure she's okay. I just need to know everything's okay, and so I checked frequently, and so I called her once, and she didn't answer the phone, and I called her twice, and she didn't answer the phone, and by the third time I called her, I was passing over King Mill, and she didn't answer the phone, and so I immediately went into emergency mode, and I turned right on King Mill, and I went down and turned right on Iris Lake, and I turned left on Cone, I turned right on South Bethany, and I pulled up in the driveway, and I reached in my bag, and I grabbed my personal protection equipment, and went into the house, and I checked all of the entryways on the lower level to make sure no one had breached the entry zone, and then she came to the top of the steps, and she said, hello, and everything was okay, but uh, I was ready if there was an emergency. And I think um, as we look at this text today, the psalmist is exposing some things that are going on in the world that should concern all of us, but we also need to understand that while there is a problem, and it's an obvious problem, and I believe it connects directly to the circumstances that we find ourselves in, let me give you the good news this morning. And the church is even living in denial of this fact. Don't miss that today. Don't miss that culturally. As there are voices from the culture that say they're proclaiming scripture, that say they're proclaiming good news, but the good news that they proclaim is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's some man-concocted, man-glorifying solution to the problems that are going on in our culture. And here's what I want you to understand. As we look at the scripture, it's going to identify the problems, the heart of the problem, even in 2021. But it's also going to identify the only solution that there has ever been to the problems that we are facing. And the solution is Christ and Christ alone. We're in Psalm 2, if you turn your Bibles there. And before I read these 12 verses, let me give you a couple of thoughts by way of introduction. Um, Psalm 1 and 2 were originally 
the first psalm. They were one unit. In fact, if you look at the first word of uh, Psalm 1 and you look at verse 12 of Psalm 2, you see this, these two words that are sort of serving as brackets for those two psalms, and it's blessed. Whenever you see that, you're seeing one unit of thought. And the idea is this, that Psalm 1 and 2 are both messianic psalms. They're Christological Psalms. They are psalms that, without a doubt, that very clearly and very profoundly, particularly Psalm 2, point to Jesus Christ. As we look specifically at Psalm 2 this morning, understand we're going to be listening to three voices. We're going to be listening to the voice of a narrator. We're going to, going to be listening to the, the voice of the kings of the earth, which, by the way, are identified as nations. Scripture speaks to nations. Don't miss that. Don't overlook that. The kings of the earth, the leaders of nations have gathered together in Psalm 2 and they speak much like our leaders today are speaking. You say, what's going on in the world today? I'm reading everything I can get my hands on to figure out what's going on in the world. Psalm 2 tells us what's going on in the world today. We're going to read about that. Thirdly, we're going to see the voice of God we're going to see the, the voice of God telling us what the solution to the problem is. The psalm breaks down very easily. I don't have to be creative or homiletical or skillful as a preacher to break the text down. It's broken down into four separate parts. Number one, first part is verses 1 to 3. The second part is verses 4 to 6. The third part is verses 7 to 9. The fourth part is verses 10 to 12. Um, those, those sections will be clear as we read the text. Let's read the text and then let me share a few thoughts from Psalm 2 this morning. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's section one. Section two we see the narrator, and then God speaks. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Notice the play on words. It's really not a play on words. The kings of the earth have set themselves... They've established themselves, but our Lord says that he has set his son in a place of authority. And so there is the establishment of the son over and against these nations that are taking a stand against God. Verse 7, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, not unlike what the father said about the son at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Not unlike what the father said about his son at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Today I have begotten you. Um, this is the day that the Lord has made very specific wording in reference to Christ and the gospel and his death and his burial and his resurrection. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's 
vessel. Fourth section, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, who run to the Son, who run to Jesus Christ for cover. The first thing I want you to see in the text is the rebellion of the nations. The rebellion of the nations. And we break these verses down into three parts. The first thing we see in verse 1 is the conspiracy against God. The nations are in uh, a rage. The nations are OCD with rage, consumed with rage, dominated with rage. They're obsessed with God's authority. They're obsessed with God's restraint. They're obsessed with the restrictions and the commands of the word of God. They are enraged that God would dare to infringe his sovereignty and his rights and his power over them. How dare there be a God? How dare there be anyone? How dare there be a church? How dare there be a book that would say, I can't be who I want to be, and I can't be who I think I should be, and I can't live the way that I want to live, and I can't choose to love who I want to love. How dare there be anybody that tell me anything that is contrary to exactly what I, in this little spot of dirt that I stand on, want to decide and say about myself. So there's this rage. You wonder wonder what's going on in our country? There is this rage. How dare there be anyone with any authority to speak to me with any certainty about anything? There's a hatred for that. Not only is there rage, but the text tells us there's a plot. The word plot means to meditate. The word plot literally means there is a conspiracy. They are conspiring. We are angry. There is the Word of God. There is the church of God. There are the people of God. There are a few preachers left that would have the audacity to say that there is a such thing as sin and that you can't do this and you can't live this way. And there are certainly clear parameters for what it means to be a child of God. So what are we going to do? Well, we've got to get rid of those people. We've got to come up with a plot. We've got to come up with a a, a plan. We're going to conspire. How can we get rid of God and his son? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They begin to imagine a world without restraint. They begin to imagine a world without rules. They begin to imagine a world in which they could do whatever they wanted to do and be whatever they wanted to be, and there would be no pang of conscience, nothing to bother them, nothing from the inside or the outside. The problem with man apart from God, if he, he thinks if he could get rid of those who look at him and disagree with him and tell, tell him that he's wrong and tell him that he's sinful, if I can get rid of those people, then I will not feel guilty about my sin. But I want to tell you that there, as, a, as a created human being in the image of God. There is a law that is written on your hearts and there is a conscience within you. And if I stand up and proclaim the word of God and proclaim the truth of scripture and tell you that you are in sin and somehow you eliminate the one who is speaking to you humanly, there is still something inside of you that is accusing you or excusing you and telling you that you're wrong. And you can do away with the church and you can do away with the gospel and you can do away with Jesus and you can do away with the concept of God and you can declare everybody to be an atheist, but there's something that's going on inside of you that is telling you that you're wrong. 
But the world is conspiring to say, man, if we can just get rid of this God and get rid of his son, imagine a world without restraint or rules. Let's plot to make this a reality. And this is a thing that the nations are doing. The kings of the earth, the heads of nations. And I want to suggest to you that the source of the problem is not the source of the solution. We've got everybody in the culture around us telling us what the solution is. So much so that the church, when it proclaims the word of God, the culture and even the, the, the churches that are influenced by the culture are telling us that the, the clear and simple proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not enough to bring reconciliation between warring factors. And I would tell you that it is the only thing that brings reconciliation to in, 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 the, in the face of warring factors. The only solution to the problems that are going on around us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there is this conspiracy against God. But secondly, verse 2 tells us that not only is there a conspiracy, not only are they angry and plotting, and the question comes from the psalmist, by the way, in verse 1, God's like, what are you you angry about? What What are you plotting for? Why are you coming up with these conspiracies? It's vain. It's vain. It's vanity. It's fruitless. It produces nothing. So so he's asking this question that he's already answered. Why are the nations raging? Why are the peoples plotting in vain? But not only are they plotting in vain, not only is there a conspiracy, but there is this cooperation that we see in verse 2. The kings of the earth are taking counsel with one another. They're they're setting themselves, positioning themselves, officially identifying themselves as being in opposition to God. They, they set themselves. We're taking an official stance. We're kicking God out. We met together. We made a decision. We've come up with a resolution. We've established an organization, and you can call it the UN, or you can call it the European Union, or you can even call it the United States of America, or you can call it the Supreme Court of the United States. You can come up with whatever organization you want to call it, and you can establish, you can counsel together, you can get everybody to agree with you, and that's, that's what they're doing. And we presume that by cooperating together against God, that we will overtake God, that we will vote God out, that we will dethrone God, and we will be able to be God in God's place. So why don't we just vote on it? We think that majority decisions and majority opinions have majority authority. And that's just not the case. That's just not the case. And so in cooperation, they determined to get rid of God. They determined to get rid of God's chains, God's restraints, God's cords, God's restriction, God's son, God's redemption, the lordship of Jesus Christ, the sovereignty of God. We will be God and we will get rid of his glory and we will make the earth and all of mankind about the glory of man. In other words, we're going to exchange Romans 1, the glory of God for the glory of man. That's where we are. It's all about human glory. And this makes sense. The fruit of Genesis 3 makes it clear. It's understandable that human beings in sin, in rebellion against God as early as the garden would want to reject God's rule and promote the concept of human glory. 
We can look at it historically, and we understand that in Genesis chapter 11, God has given the the descendants of Noah a command and has told them exactly what to do. And they said, you know what? We're going to stay here. We're going to build this tower, the Tower of Babel. It's going to go into the heavens. And God looks down. He's like, there's no end to what these people can do. I'm going to confound the languages. The languages were confounded because of rebellion against God, a failure to obey the clear commands of God to go and populate the earth. But here are the nations now conspiring against God. You can go to Daniel chapter 2, and Daniel has seen this vision, and Nebuchadnezzar is asking for an interpretation, and he gives him the interpretation. And all of a sudden, he says, you are this golden head at the top. It's all about your glory. And in Genesis chapter 3, he, he makes this image, and he says, everybody bow down to my glory. We go from the Tower of Babel to Babylon. You can also see it. Um, historically, in Acts chapter 4 and verses 23 to 27, it's interesting in Acts 4 that those who were experiencing persecution in the book of Acts attributed this persecution to Psalm 2. They made the connection between Acts 4 and Psalm 2. Acts chapter 4 and verse number 23 It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27, here's, here's their application of that. So we're looking at it historically. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What are they saying? They're saying Herod, Pontius Pilate, Israel, the the Gentiles, all of these people are this manifestation of the second psalm. This, This rising up and this rebellion of the nations has been seen historically, but if you go to Revelation chapter 17, you can see it prophetically. We go from the Tower of Babel to Babylon in Daniel chapter 2 to this this great whore the Scripture calls Babylon. Again, this, this great nation that is in rebellion against God, that is pursuing not God's glory, but man's glory. We also see it currently right before our eyes in this nation, in this historical moment, even in the church. I won't do a deep dive into that this morning. I believe we're living through some of the most seismic historical shifts that we have ever seen in the history of mankind. Things are happening now. Things are being spoken now. Things are in uh, absolute, outright, uh, un. Um, Hidden, un, you know, n- nothing, nothing is is hidden with the words that are spoken in an assault against Almighty God right here in the nation in which we live. And so we see it before our eyes. We see the nation standing up against God and against His Son and against His Word and against His constraints. We also know that it's going on in our own heart because there is rebellion rebellion in our own hearts. And we know it's a constant struggle. We know ultimately at the end of history that there is going to be this great battle and Jesus Christ is going to be the great victor. 
This is what we do. This is what we've done since the fall. We are in rebellion not only as nations, but we are in rebellion as individuals. So we see the conspiracy and the cooperation, but we also see in verse 3 the conflict. Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us obliterate their bonds. Let us abolish any sliver of control or restraint. Can I, can I just ask you, what in the world do we, what, what place do we have to get to that, that a child can be aborted at any point in time and then even after it is born alive can either be killed or left to die? Absolutely no restraint at all. The sanctity of human life is at the core of any society that has any life in it. And when the sanctity of human life is gone in any society, that society is dead. And this is not rebellion against some law. It's rebellion against Almighty God. It's rebellion against the Creator. We're gonna, and I could give you example after example of just so many different things. By the way, that the church is doing all that it can to twist and turn and be complicit with because we just want to have as many people, and we don't, we don't want to be offensive, and we don't, want, we don't want anybody to cancel us. So there are certain things that we won't say, and if we do say them, we whisper them because we're scared. And we're complicit with those who would be against God. So there is this conflict. We will burst their chains asunder. I wonder how much more extreme it could be. And then I wake up and read the news the next morning. The second thing we see in the text, verses 4 to 6, is the reaction, the reaction of the Father. And the Father is doing three things in the text very clearly. The Father is sitting, the Father is speaking, and the Father is solving the problems that are going on. The Father is seated on His throne. He is not panicking. He is not surprised. Isaiah chapter 6 Isaiah is all in an uproar. King Uzziah has died. What is going to happen to the nation now that this great king has died? And he has this vision as he goes into the temple, and the Lord is seated on his throne, high and lifted up, and his train is filling the temple. And God is not, the, t- the th- throne of God is not teetering back and forth. God is not wringing his hands. God is not panicking, saying, What am I going to do? God has a plan even for the day and age in which we live. And God laughs. The only place in Scripture that we see God laughing is here in the second psalm. And he he scoffs at them. The thing that we need to understand about God sitting here in this text is that it seems like from the perspective of those who are going through all of these experiences is that God is silent. And I don't know about you, but it seems like in the days in which we live that God is silent. Why don't you do something, Lord? Why don't you pass out some judgment? Why don't you do something to rectify these problems that continue to get worse and worse and worse? God is sitting, but if you'll notice verse 5, he's sitting and he's laughing. I don't think it's a laughter of amusement. I don't think God is amused at the things that are happening. I think God is perhaps uh, laughing at those who think that they can burst his chains, they can break his bands, that they can live in rebellion or rejection against him. You can't do that. It won't happen. It's not going to happen. 
I don't think God is laughing at the condition of mankind. But he's sitting seemingly silently, seemingly unresponsively. And when you come to verse 5, it says, Then, at a point in time, then he will speak. So he sits and he speaks, but the text is telling us that the language that God uses to speak is wrath. It is the wrath of God that speaks. It is the wrath of God that communicates. He's going to speak in wrath, and he's going to terrify them in his fury, saying, he's going to wake them up. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God speaks. He communicates, but then God tells them, I've got a, a solution. I'm going to set my king in place. You have set yourselves over and against me. But now my king is going to be the sovereign ruler. He is going to solve the problem. And he sends the only one that can solve the problem. This is the solution. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God who speaks in wrath, sends his only begotten Son to bear the full fury of his wrath in the place of those that are in rebellion against him. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the only hope that any of us has this morning. The God who I would like to see just crush everybody that's sinful and somehow thinking that I would be excluded from that. Doesn't crush everyone that is sinful, but he sends his son and crushes him so that those who are sinful can have life. So he says, I'm going to solve the problem. I'm going, I'm going to send my son. And this should be seen as terrifying. The one who suffered wrath for the sins of mankind now comes to mete out the wrath of God on all who rest, who will not rest in his finished work. We can't miss that. It's not this nice Jesus who dies for everyone and now everybody's saved. No, it is only those who rest in the finished work of Christ, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection that experience the peace and rest and come into the family of God. But those who will reject him will experience this spoken wrath, this word that speaks and wrath pours out on those who are outside of Jesus Christ. This should be terrifying. I'm reminded of Acts 2 when Peter stands and preaches on the day of Pentecost. And he says, and this same Jesus that you crucified is alive. I don't know about you, but if I thought I killed somebody and I found out they were alive, I'd be scared. I'd be, I'd be looking over. My, I mean, I look over my shoulder all the time anyway. If you saw me at Walmart yesterday, I got out of my car and I'm like, I'm looking around. You know, I'm kind of striking a pose ready for... You know, ready for somebody to come and try to grab me around the throat, take my keys, take my wallet, take my truck, you know, take the plants I bought at Walmart. I'm ready. But here is this one who has the power to meet out wrath. And in Acts 2, after Peter preached his sermon, and he said, the same Jesus that you killed is now alive. They're like, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? What should we do? And he tells them to repent, to repent. Jesus Christ is the solution. Christianity, resting in the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, is 
the solution. I was looking at James Boyce and reading through his commentary, and listen to what he said, because there may be those of you here that think that we're just some, some aberration, right? We're just a bunch of, uh, you, you kids may be here with your parents, and you're just like, I, you know, I'm here because my parents make me come here, but when I get free, when I cast off their bonds, when, when I break their chains, I'm not going to go and sit around for an hour on Sunday morning and listen to somebody talk about Jesus. I don't even believe in that Jesus stuff. That's my parents' religion. It's not mine. But I, I want you to listen. I want you to listen historically. Historically. There was a man named Diocletian lived in the 3rd and 4th centuries. He struck a medal which bore the inscription, the name of Christianity being extinguished. That was, that was in the 200s and the 300s. That was 1,700 years ago. He traveled west, westward into Spain where he erected two monuments proclaiming Diocletian. And he gives a lot of different names. He had like six different names. Having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. Another monument he put up. He gives his name. He says, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. For, for having, ex yeah, having extended the worship of the gods. What, what are we saying? Historically, there have been world leaders and na national leaders who said, we're not into this Jesus stuff. In fact, we're going to extinguish Jesus. Individuals that were far more powerful than a, than a ragtag group of fishermen that hunkered down in an upper room praying and waiting for the fall of the Spirit. A group of people that needed some guy that, that didn't speak well and wasn't very attractive named the Apostle Paul who's taking the gospel everywhere that he can go. And these national leaders with all of their armies, with all of their forces, with all of their libraries, with all of their brilliant people, with all of their philosophers can't stop Christianity. They can't stop it. One writer, William Plummer, said this, of, of the 30 Roman emperors, governors of provinces, and other, others in high office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians, one became speedily deranged after some atrocious cruelty. One was slain by his own son. One became blind. The eyes of one started out of his head. One was drowned. One was strangled. One died in a miserable captivity. One fell dead in a manner that will not bear a recital. One died of a loathsome disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they could not abide the stench that filled the room. Two committed suicide. A third attempted it but had to call for help to finish the work. Five more were assassinated by their own people or servants. Five others died the most miserable and excruciating deaths, several of them having an untold complication of diseases. Eight were killed in battle and after being taken prisoners. Among them was Julian the Apostate. In the days of his prosperity, he, he is said to have pointed his dagger to heaven, defying the Son of God, whom he commonly called the Galilean. And when he was wounded in battle, he saw all was over with him, and he gathered his clotted blood and threw it in the air, exclaiming, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. And James Boyce said, So it has been throughout history, so it will be to the end. This is not just some empty truth that people believe. This is the ultimate truth that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ.
And so we see the second thing in the text, the reaction of the Father. He says, I'm sending my Son. But then thirdly, we see the revelation of the Son, verses 7 to 9. I want you to see this because there, there, is, there is no one else that you want to associate with on the face of this planet. There, there, is, there is none better than Jesus. There is no place to go besides Jesus. There is no place to find life. There is, there is no one that you're going to find that is going to love you and care for you and provide for you and offer you hope. No one but this Jesus, this, this one that God the Father is telling us about. I'm sending my son. Notice his description. Look at verse 7, if you will. I will tell of the decree. This is, a, this is a, an absolute, unassailable statement. It's not going to be wrong. The Lord said to me, you are my son. You are my beloved son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. What is he, what is he saying as he talks to us about the revelation of the son? Here's three things that he's telling us about the son. Number one, the son is a sacrificial leader. He's telling us of a time period, you are my beloved son. He's telling us of a time period in the New Testament when Jesus Christ, the son of God, was coming to die for sinners. You are my beloved son. Jesus was on his way to the cross. We want Jesus to be a triumphant victor and a conqueror, but his earthly ministry was not that of a victor or a conqueror in the way that we think. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, from this text and from the New Testament text, was crushed. He gives himself for those who would live in rebellion against him. I want Jesus Christ to come in judgment, and certainly one day, he will, but what we fail to see in our desire for him to judge the rebellious is that if he were to judge the rebellious, he would have to judge us as well. And the fact of the matter is he came and was judged for us in our place as the rebellious so that we could be called beloved sons. This text is also pointing to Christ. He's, he says, I will tell you this degree, decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And if you go to Acts, where this same text is quoted in Acts chapter 13, you're going you're gonna to see a connection between this text and the, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 13, I'll begin reading um, when I find it in verse 26. He says, brothers... Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him in no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to his fathers that this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus also 
It is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What what is he saying in the text from Psalm 2 as he speaks of this son? This son was one who sacrificed himself, was one who paid our sin debt in full, who rose victorious over sin and can offer life to all who would follow him. He is a sacrificial leader. He secondly is a saving leader. Verse 8, he says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The Father has given the Son the nations. And the Son has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the Son has told those who would follow him, go into all the world and make disciples. These, These wicked, rebellious, sinful people Rather than crush them, he saves from among the heathen a people for himself. While we want to run and retreat as the church, while we want to run and hide as the church, while we want to decry all this going on around us in society, in culture, and it seems like the church is under attack, now is the greatest season that we've ever lived in probably to go and proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this sacrificial leader. We have this saving leader who has died and who has sent us out as his disciples to go and make disciples. But thirdly, he is a shepherding leader. Look at verse 9, if you will. You shall break them with a rod of iron. The word break, many many commentators have said this word can be translated as shepherd them, discipline them, disciple them. That's what a rod is used for. It's used for discipline. It's used to guide. It's used to correct. It's used to to grab and pull from danger. It's used to just put aside and, and, and gently point in the direction that it should go or stop something or a sheep from going in the wrong direction. This son that the father has sent to solve all of the issues that we are facing is a shepherding Leader. He governs as a loving shepherd. He disciplines as a loving shepherd. You don't want to rebel against him. You have no place to go but to those who are in rebellion. You have no place to go but to those who are conspiring and continuing to conspire. You have no place to go but to those who are filled with rage. And I'm telling you this morning that there is one who is sacrificial, there is one who saves, and there is one who is a gentle shepherd, and we can run to him. And the psalmist would tell us to do that precisely. Verses 10 to 12, finally, we see the refuge for the believer. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, and can, listen, folks, when we see, we see this crushing, this crushing that we see in the beginning of the text. We see these people that are saying, I'll tell you what, I am so sick of God. I'm so sick of God's rules. I'm so sick of God's word. I'm so sick of God's authority. I'm so sick of, of everybody talking about Jesus. I'm so sick of all of this. I want, to, I want to get rid of this. Man, you, you, you come at me and you talk to me that way, I'm done with you. You, you. you get in front of me, you spit in my face, you start shaking your fist in my face, you start threatening me, you tell me how much you can't stand me. I, I'm, I don't want anything to do with you. When we come to verse 10, we see this, this massive outpouring of grace. Here is, here is this God that we have rebelled against. 
Here is this God that we have conspired against. Here is this God that we have plotted against. Here is this God that we are filled with rage against. Here is this God that we would just, we wish would just leave us alone coming to us. He's coming to us. And, and he's, he's summonsing the leaders, the rebellious leaders of the world, and he's reasoning with them. The first thing we see him doing is giving them instruction. He says, now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. He reasons with them. But then not only does he instruct them, but he invites them. Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The lie of Satan is that sin is the gateway to rejoicing. Every time I sin and every time you sin, we sin based on the promise that that sin makes us. And the promise that sin makes us is this, that my life will be better with this sin. I will be happier with this sin. Therefore, if I can sort of maybe feel like a failure, feel like a loser, get angry with God, feel like God let me down, my rejoicing is really not in him, then Satan comes and says, you know what, you really can't rejoice in him, but I can tell you this, I've got something that you can rejoice in. What I'm telling you is this, that you and I were created to uniquely rejoice specifically in one thing, and that is Christ and Christ alone. And apart from finding him as a source of our joy and rejoicing, there is no joy or rejoicing to be found or had on the face of this planet in any other source. So, so it's, it's just crazy that these rulers are doing all that they're doing to rebel against the one source of joy. And it's crazy that I do the same thing. And so he invites them back. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I think we see in the text the psalmist inviting us from the depth of our inner man to experience the power of Almighty God. I think that's why he uses the terms that he uses. I think that's why he uses the term fear. I think that's why he uses the term rejoicing. And he continues to instruct us and he tells us, or to, to invite us, and he tells us to kiss the Son, pay homage to the Son, submit to the Son. There is the, there is the Son who is the King, and He's saying, "Why don't you bow down before Him?" He said, "I'm not bowing down before anybody. I'm not submit to anybody. I'm not letting anybody take control or have control. I'm not going to recognize anybody as Lord over my life." There is the outstretched hand of the Son of God, and when you look at His outstretched hands, to say, "Come." And serve me. Come into my family. Come and be a part of my kingdom. Those outstretched hands are the hands that have the nail piercings that were the payment for your sin and mine so that we might experience life together with him in the family of God. There is no one else 
And by the way, anything you turn to is going to ask you to pay homage to it. Is going to ask you to serve it. But there is, there is no one else that is asking you to bow down and humble yourself and serve like Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is asking you. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. There is no other way to avoid anger. There is no other way to avoid perishing than finding life in the Son. Turn to the Son now. Submit to the Son now. Worship the Son now. For His wrath is quickly kindled when we rest and trust in Him. And finally, the psalmist ends with blessed, happy, Fulfilled are all who take refuge in him, in all who run to him for cover, in all who find rest in him. There is no safe place in time or eternity but in Christ alone. There is no safe place in time or eternity but in Christ alone. And I would I would beg you this morning. To look to this psalm as the only source of hope. I really, when I preached, uh, when I, we talked about, so, so we're like, hey, what psalm do you want to preach? I'm like, man, I want to preach Psalm 2. I thought, if I preach Psalm 2, I can, I can really dig in and, and I can, I, man, I can, I can just zing all, all, of this, all of this stuff that's going on in our culture. I could just throw rocks at it and point it out and talk about how bad it is. And it is, it is. But as I dug into the text, what I found out, is this psalm, while it is an indictment of the enemies of God, it is the only hope that is found for those of us who, apart from Christ, would be enemies of God. And so I went from thinking, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on a rant and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about how bad it is. And I found in the text how good Christ is. Turn to him this morning. In closing, let me just offer a few uh, thoughts that I believe come from the text. Number one, I would ask you to repent this morning. I would ask you to repent. And I would ask you this question. Does your theology make allowances for the pursuit of human glory? Does your theology make allowances for the pursuit of human glory? If it does, it's not biblical theology. Human glory is in diametrical opposition to the glory of God. Your soul will never be nourished and fed and find joy and hope and rest and peace in human glory. Your soul will only find rest when you live with your body, with your mind, with your heart, with your soul in the way that God intended. And that is to bring glory to the Son who died your death in your place for your sin. Secondly, not only repent... But real-world problems have but one solution, and that's the gospel. That's the gospel. The cultural, historical moment that we are in is not unlike the moment that the psalmist found himself in in Psalm 2. And the answer then was Jesus Christ, and the answer now is Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. And so I would beg you this morning to see Jesus as the solution, to see the gospel as the solution. And I would say this, I, I, will, be, I will be bold and, and bombastic for just a moment. You are most foolish and godless when you think that the, 
the problems that are going on culturally and relationally in our world today, if you think that somehow the gospel in its simplicity and clarity doesn't address these issues, you are most foolish. There is not a solution found in any other place other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, I would say this, hope in Christ alone, no matter what's going on around us. Hope in Christ alone, no matter what's going on around us. The nations are raging, the people are plotting, conspiracies are taking place. What do we do? Hope in Christ alone. The Father has sent the Son who is the solution. Listen, find your refuge in Him. Find your refuge in Him. Run to Him. The storms will pass until another one comes. Run to Christ. Fourthly, go into all the world and proclaim good news. The Son has come, and He has ascended, and He has sent us out to make disciples of the rebellious heathen who hate the God that we love. Did you hear that? God the Son has sent us out as His people to make disciples of the heathen who hate the God that we love. The text bears that out. And finally, you know, years ago, a big deal was like a bug out bag. Anybody got a bug out bag? I got a bug out bag. I gave all my kids, I gave all my kids a bug out bag. And, and I got a plan, right? I, I don't want to get caught off guard. I want to take care of myself. I want to take care of my wife. I, I'm not being critical of, of any of those things. But that's not refuge. That's not refuge. There's only one safe place to go, and that is to Christ. And if you are not in him today, you are exposed. You're in a dangerous place. And I would invite you this morning, as, as the Son has invited the rebellious world leaders, come, kiss the Son, and find refuge in him. <music> 